ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green back with you today for The Country Hour. Great to have your company. Coming up in this next half an hour, do you have problems with paddy melon? Well, some research coming out of South Australia is actually looking at how this invasive weed could be put to use, and it could be put to use as a form of cement. So stick around to learn about that. Also, while there's been some big falls in sheep and lamb markets in recent weeks, you'll hear from one analyst who says there's still reasons to be optimistic. If you look at, say, average weekly yardings for, for lamb over, over that first bit of Feb, we're talking you know, 20, 226,000 head of lamb on average per week and about 125,000 head of sheep. So um, big, strong numbers. That's to come. Don't forget my talkback number today is 1300 891. Or if you want to send me a text at any time throughout the program at 0467 921. Well, the cost of containers may go up as a result of the new wages agreement between port workers and DP World. DP World uh, manages 40% of container traffic here in Australia and the dispute with workers was causing significant delays in recent months. Professor Vintai teaches logistics and port operations at RMIT's university in Melbourne and he told David Clawton the new agreement still needs to be signed by both parties but things are getting back to normal at the ports. When we say back to normal, that means... Uh, there'll be no further hiccup uh, unless there's something else uh, happening that which we don't know. But the um, um, d- delay in the uh, clearance of the containers in the port are been easing out. Uh, not yet completely out yet, but it'll be in the next couple of weeks or so. That's that's according to my calculation. And in terms of what the workers have won. Uh, I'm hearing it was sort of bringing them up to what other players in the industry are paying. So uh, that'd be like Patrick's, for example. But what implications do you think it will will have that they've that they've agreed to pay workers more? I think it's for business. It's all go back to the basic equation between revenue, cost, and uh, profit. So apparently, from the poor perspective, uh, they agreed to pay higher. That means the cost will be going up for them. And if they still want to maintain the same profit margin that they've been uh, enjoying so far, what that means is the revenue part will need to be increased as well. And that means uh, the um, increase in the prices of the port-related services would then translate into the higher cost for other uh, port customers and eventually the end users. However, if the uh, employer, the, uh, I mean the port in this case, um, uh, in, in a way, decide to keep the profit margin uh, at the manageable level, uh, and and do not want to pass on the cost to the, the other end users, then that would be a good news. Right, but uh, DP World have only recently increased their their port service charges significantly, haven't they? We've heard from uh, the Freight Alliance that the charges have gone up in at the end of January by about you know, more than fifty percent. Yeah, that's right. Yep. So you think they might go up again? Oh, well, my prediction is that uh, in view of the recent increase, um, 
there will not likely to be a sudden increase in the very near future. However, in the medium and long term, we cannot uh, exclude that possibility from happening. Are they making excessive profits? Because we have heard this from some of the regulators, haven't we? They think that the and they, these two companies, DP World and 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 Patrick's, control about forty percent each of the traffic. So it's a they've got a a bit like the supermarkets. They've got a duopoly happening there, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. That is the uh, basically, you know, the features of the Australian port system. Uh, first of all, let's take one step back and say that, you know, um, majority of our household commodities are imported in containers from overseas. We don't have a so-called um, national fleet uh, in a way to uh, to be in a very proactive position to control the maritime supply chain, especially the import into the country. And uh, we don't have the land border. That means we rely heavily onto the port system uh, for our daily life essentials. Um, so if uh, DP World decide to give you know, the same profit margin that they have been enjoying so far, uh, definitely you know, from the business perspective, what does mean is they will need to pass on the, the cost increase to somebody else. And what does mean is the port-related services will be, uh, will be priced a little bit higher and then eventually translated into the end user at the supermarket. That is Professor Vin Tai. He is from RMIT University. He was speaking there to David Clawton. Um, Professor Vin Tai is also the founder of the Australian Maritime Logistics Research Network. It's 10 minutes past 12. Well, could one of the country's most invasive weeds be used as a form of cement? In a world-first study, researchers at the University of South Australia have found that the prickly paddy melon weed could turn into an unlikely money spinner using its enzymes to create a bio-cement that could be used in construction or hardening soils. Paddy melons cost the agricultural industry around $100 million a year in lost grain yields, cattle deaths and control measures. Well, UniSA geotechnical engineer Professor Mizunu Raman says they have been looking at alternate cementation agents and the paddy melon enzyme could be the answer. As you know, cement is quite not good for environment. They produce one kilogram of carbon dioxide for one kilogram of cement. Then studies started with the idea of uh, bio-cementation. So, you know, uh, the sandstone, they form over hundreds of thousands of years. So we want to mimic the technique, the hundreds of years that takes in a week time. So I was looking for whether we can find it in an alternative way from plants. There has been some study before, but not in this. Um, cementation method. So we produce laboratory grade enzymes that's quite very, very expensive. So I thought, why not try some weeds and plants in Australia? The first thing coming in my mind is the grass. We mow the grass uh, and we get plenty of them. So as a novice, I tried that and I realized grass doesn't do that. <laughs> it doesn't have that enzyme. So uh, I was looking for something more specific. Then it comes in my mind the paddy melon that produces lots of seeds and seeds uh, germinate. So then I collect pedimidum through one of my colleagues. Uh, he being one bag of pedimidum. Then we tried in the lab, and we were surprised that it ticks all the box. It's actually very active and young there, and they can do very good cementation. Professor Rahman and his students collected the pedimidum weed from roadsides in South Australia. After crushing the seeds and extracting enzymes in a liquid form, they freeze-dried them to create a powdered, high-concentration cementation agent. The next time when you want to use it, you just mix that powder with 
little bit of water, depending on what concentration you want, and the concentration of enzyme will dictate the reaction rate. So in the past, people could do the reaction in one week, the cementation in one week. We can do it now in six hours. And you mentioned that it could be used for the construction industry. Is that for cement slabs for homes and things like that? Could you see it being used for for something like this? The conventional concrete EC, we are not looking for replacing conventional concrete at this stage because the technology is not in that level. But people using similar technique, it's called self-filling concrete, or if you have crack between the concrete, so you can pour this liquid in between the crack and they glue them, they join them together. So people are working on this in concrete. My predominantly interest in construction in soil stabilization. So if you have soil somewhere is soft, not ready for bigger construction, we could spread this liquid or you could percolate this liquid like rain and water, they go deeper and they get make like very stabilized hard soil so that you can construct different kind of buildings. Uh, it's not only useful for bigger building, it could be useful for road construction, you know. It's somewhere like in main deposit where the soft soil is softer. You construct the road and over time it settles and cracks. You could stop that. And so can you use this to sort of hold soil together essentially? Yes. So the, uh, the main idea is, is bonding the particle together. So they are joined together, they can can't disperse themselves anymore. Now, for wind erosion and water erosion, we looked at this idea. One of our students work on it. So we get this solution, and then solution, and the soil solution with calcium chloride. So if we spray top of the soil, now, as I mentioned, I can control the reaction rate. If I do the slow reaction, this liquid will go deeper. It will have deeper penetration and deeper crust. If I want thinner crust, I could have the reaction faster. So what do we do? We spray the liquid top of the soil and it forms a thin crust and they could be really, really strong. So what happens? Uh, this crust is wind resistance and water resistance. So we test in wind tunnel and raindrop test in our laboratory and we find it significantly reduced the wind and water erosion. What's the feedback been like from other industries? Well, everybody is really excited. We are working with few industry partners they are interested in, but most of them is in terms of R&D, research and development. We haven't looked at any commercial product at this stage. So the uh, construction industry is interested, mining industry is interested, and forestry is also interested. How could it be used in the forestry industry? Now, in forestry, we are looking for suppressing wheat germination. So when wheat germinate, the seedlings have an emerging pressure to pulse through the soil. So if the soil has a thin crust and has sufficient strength, uh, that will suppress the weed to come up. That is UniSA geotechnical engineer, Professor Mizunu Raman there, and he was speaking to Brooke Nindorf. Always interesting to hear about uh, well, pests and invasive species being turned into something useful. Keep an eye out uh, for more on that on the ABC Rural website as well soon if you'd like to read more about it. In a heartwarming new season. I'm a bit shy and I'm fairly risk averse. I'm 22 and I'm ready to start dating. Meet the singles looking for love. It's just really scary. I am unique, fabulous, don't forget that. I think I'm crushing a little bit. I would like to kiss someone. The brand new season of Better Date Than Never. No tans. Starts tonight on ABC TV and ABC iView. Always free, always entertaining. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Well, despite some big falls in sheep and lamb markets in recent weeks, a leading analyst says there are some reasons for optimism about future pricing. Both lamb and mutton markets have taken big hits, with trade lambs falling from an average of $186 a head a month ago to $151 a head today, and mutton dropping from $88 to $57. That's just since the start of February. Matt Dalgleish is director of Episode3.net. He says increased throughput is a big factor behind the falls. Oh, if you look back over, say, the, the last three weeks, or the first three weeks, I should say, of February, we've seen increasing uh, throughput at the sale yards on, across the East Coast and significant kind of numbers um, if you look at, say, average weekly yardings for, for lamb over, over that first bit of Feb, we're talking you know, 20, 226,000 head of lamb on average per week and about 125,000 head of sheep. So um, big, strong numbers. Um, and, and if you compare those figures to, to, say, the same time last year, both for sheep and lamb, both of those are 28% higher than last year. So you know, it's, a, it's a strong start and some of that extra supply, I think, is weighing on price. And, I mean, if you look at the indicators, those graphs that represent the movement of price, you can see that they're, they're tracking down pretty starkly. But, but what sort of price falls have we seen? So for trade lamb, uh, you're talking about an 18% drop from the, from the recent peak. It, was, it peaked kind of start of the year, mid-January, around 7.75 cents a kilo carcass weight. And that's now sitting uh, at 636, so yeah, an 18% drop. And for mutton, it's been a little bit more stark. Um, that's dropped about 33% uh, from a peak of um, 313 cents uh, down to 209. So that's taken a bit more of a hit. But um, oh, look, when you when you look at the volumes being presented, though, you, know, you, you probably expect that it's going to play out a little bit on price. Those really strong numbers that I, I spoke about at the outset, if you compare the same type of um, volumes against the five-year trend, it's even stronger. Um, you know, say for lamb, numbers are like 47% above the five-year trend for the start of February and, and sheep are 64% above the five-year trend. So they are quite strong supply numbers and, you know, with that coming through, you'd expect some level of price decline. So I think it, all things in perspective, it's it's not a bad result really. And this is probably a very simplistic take, but is it the case that the price went up, so more people sold, and now the price has gone down, or is there more throughput just because that's the way production systems have worked out? Oh, look, no, I think it could be a combination, particularly as you get for like we had a, quite a wet start to, to summer, which was event, event it was unexpected, I guess, to a degree, given some of the forecasts. But if you think of what's happened over the last you know, well, into February, it has dried out a bit now, finally, in a lot of areas. So it could be a combination of that, you know, drier summer actually eventuating, hotter temperatures and, and pasture starting to cure off completely. So I think, you know, a combination of good pricing uh, to allow a bit of a bit of lightening of stock and also maybe, you know, a, a, a slightly drier finish to the end of summer. Um, so people have lightened the load a little bit there as well and, and the price allowed them to do so, you know, and get reasonable, reasonable levels, um, uh, you know, considering what the price was at when we saw those lows of last year. And, of course, the, the big price rises we saw early in the new year after coming off that very low base. I suppose farmers hoped that those prices would, would level out at that higher level rather than come back down, but, but come back down they have. Yeah, that's right. But like I said, all things considered, given the, the volumes, the very strong volumes, I think, um, you know, the price has reacted in a, in a fairly, you know, it's still sig- signifying to me that the market's still pretty robust. To have those supply uh, volumes coming through and, and having, you know, the, the, the impact that ha- has on price, you know, you could have 
you know, if, 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 if demand wasn't as strong as it has been at the start of the year, I think you know, if you look back to see how strong the export markets opened for January, and particularly for sheep and mutton had our strongest January on record, I think, for both of those, for exports. So there is, you know, that's one, I guess, silver lining that producers can be comfortable. Yes, the price has come off, but it's in the face of strong supply, and, and the reason probably why it hasn't come off as much is because um, the demand uh, out there on the export space is still pretty robust. Okay, so given that point about uh, relatively strong demand, the million-dollar question, of course, is where do you predict markets to go from here? I don't see this kind of decline in price. Unless we continue to see really strong supply uh, ongoing, I don't think we're going to see it continue to slide. And so I suspect we're going to you know, see the normal uh, scenario that we see where prices you know, kind of hold and start to firm up a little bit as we head towards winter. It's it's a tricky one, isn't it, for farmers when we've got this volatility, people trying to make big decisions about selling or buying or or joining or not joining or, or whatever it may be, uh, and and the market does unpredictable or, or volatile things. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess, you know, people that have been around in the game through a few different cycles and a few different kind of market, um, you know, pressures, that they, they would be familiar with these kind of, that's commodity markets. One takeaway, you know, is for the farmer to con- and the producer to consider is, is focus on the things you can have some control over, and a lot of that's the on-farm management. And like you're saying, you know, you, you, what you're doing in terms of your schedules and your joinings and what's happening, you know, on-farm in front of you, rather than, you know, it, it is it is tricky to try and um, outpick the markets when it comes to price. It's good to have a you know have an eye on what's happening in that space, of course, and be aware of what kind of influences are impacting your commodity that's important to you. So those global factors like exports and demand and what's happening around the world that does have a, an impact. But um, at the end of the day, you know, it's one of those things you've got to control the things you can control and most of the time for the farmer, it's what's on farm. And just lastly, Matt, a big picture sort of question. Um, of course, a lot of negativity developed in the in livestock markets last year with, with the price crashes and even with price rises. I don't think a lot of that negativity is, has necessarily dissipated. But uh, in the longer term, for people look, having a good look at their production systems and thinking whether they should be or how much they should be in the, the meat-producing game, uh, what would you say to them? Uh, look, I think broadly when you look at the those longer-term macroeconomic factors that influence the, the longer-term trends, so not your, your kind of seasonal and month-to-month price fluctuations because they can be they can be you know, at the behest of things like this strong supply or, or, or short-term kind of trends. But the longer-term outlook for red meat more broadly and sheep meat's part of that is very strong. Um, so I, I think you know people that are considering their enterprise mix, I think um, if you are already involved in livestock and you know, even if you've got a mixed, op- you know, mixed farm, I think livestock and sheep meat in particular, the, the outlook longer-term is, is a pretty robust one. We've got so many markets that are keen for, for Australian uh, sheep meat products and there's such limited supply when you look at global players in that space that I think the um, the longer term trends are pretty positive. So, you know, I'd be I'd be looking to hang around in that space if I was in that game. That was the thoughts of market analyst Matt Dalgleish, and he was speaking there to Angus Verley. You're on the South Australian Country Hour. Selena Green with you on this Tuesday, and it's 24 minutes past 12. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau now, and John Fisher is our forecaster today. Hello, John. G'day, Selena. What's the story around the state? 
Yeah, look, we've uh, got a couple of days uh, to go of this warm spell that we've been experiencing, uh, but uh, obviously temperatures have been quite uh, variable uh, across the, the state, and, and today we're seeing uh, some cloud cover, some middle and high-level cloud push across kind of central and eastern parts of the agricultural area at the moment, so that's keeping some uh, temperatures uh, through those areas uh, down a touch, so we've only been to around 22 degrees at uh, Mount Gambia, um, uh, similar temperatures uh, across Kangaroo Island there, uh, and, and also out in the far west of the state we are seeing some milder temperatures than yesterday uh, across the, the Nullarbor uh, plain there. We've uh, had some fog th this morning and uh, Sejuna's uh, only looking at around yeah, 22 degrees at the moment. Um, but uh, to the north of that cloud we, we are seeing uh, that heat that that's, we've been experiencing for a number of days now continue. Uh, Port Augusta's already been up to around the 39 degree mark and uh, yeah, looking at uh, high 30s or low 40s through the, the, the pastoral districts this afternoon. And, and across the Flinders and pastures, we, the pastoral districts, we could see a repeat of the uh, shower and thunderstorm activity that we've been having over the last couple of days uh, as well. So, look, those totals, uh, you know, with those storms, fairly isolated and uh, uh, nothing too significant. But we've seen some uh, local falls to around the, the five millimetre mark over the last couple of days, and, and could see something uh, similar uh, through the, the Flinders and, and north of again today. Uh, so we've got uh, the, the synoptic pattern is a, a deepening trough of low pressure through central parts uh, of the state. Uh, now that's going to move eastwards tomorrow uh, and, and also weaken, but uh, as it does move eastwards we're going to see that thunderstorm activity contract up into the, the far northeast corner of the state. Uh, could potentially see some severe storms up through that part of the world, right up around Inaminka. Uh, but uh, yeah, generally looking at dry conditions again across the state for, for Wednesday. Um, may see some morning fog around parts of Air Peninsula and the lower southeast as well, but uh, generally clearing up and, and we're going to see temperatures come up quite a bit through some of those southern and southeastern areas. So where we're only seeing those temperatures in the low mid-20s down through the southeast today, we're going to jump right up uh, into the mid-30s tomorrow. So we're uh, going to start to feel that heat and, and winds coming round uh, to, to the north um, later Wednesday and in, into Thursday, and that's ahead of our cool change. So um, looking like a dry change at this stage, but, uh, yeah, that, that will be moving across western and southern parts of the state during the, the morning and early afternoon on Thursday uh, and, and then contracting uh, inland and uh, really uh, freshening those southerly winds in behind it. So could uh, whip up some dust through northern parts of the state uh, and also we're going to see some elevated fire dangers ahead of that change. So uh, keep an eye out for some potential fire weather warnings there on Thursday. But, uh, yeah, that, that'll move north, um, be dry change as I mentioned and temperatures dropping right back uh, for, for Friday and, and Saturday there uh, and yeah, in behind that change maybe just a bit of cloud moving up across southern parts of the agricultural area um, but not really seeing much in, in the way of rainfall, uh, maybe just one or two very light showers uh, about uh, the, the southern uh, kind of coastal areas and down through the lower southeast. Uh, and, and again, with those fresh winds continuing uh, throughout on Friday, we, we could see some further raised dust through northern parts uh, of the state. And then beyond that, look, no rainfall, unfortunately, for those who might be looking for it in sight. Um, so, yeah, it looks like that this dry spell continuing, um, you know, through the weekend and, and into early next week. And we're just going to see those temperatures start to, to climb again. So uh, at first over the kind of Sunday, Monday period, it is through those northern areas where we're going to see those temperatures come back up. Uh, but uh, by Tuesday, we, we could see a hot day throughout, Selena.
All right. Thanks for that, John. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. John Fisher there from the Weather Bureau. Now, the forecast for the western inland parts of New South Wales for tomorrow, the Upper Western District, partly cloudy with a medium chance of showers, most likely in the afternoon and evening with the chance of a thunderstorm. Uh, northeast to south Easterly winds, 15 to 25 k's an hour, tending northeasterly early in the morning before tending northwest to northeasterly in the early afternoon. Overnight temperatures falling to the low to mid 20s, daytime temps reaching into the mid to high 30s. For the lower western district tomorrow, partly cloudy, a medium chance of showers in the far east, a slight chance elsewhere. There is a chance of a thunderstorm with east to southeasterly winds, 15 to 25 k's an hour, turning northeasterly early in the morning. Overnight temperatures in the lower western district falling to the low to mid 20s with the daytime temperatures reaching 32 to 37. Coming up in the next half an hour, well, look at uh, some of the tactics that supermarkets are using to keep prices high and perhaps keep competition out. And some of the examples Four Corners has dug up from South Australia. Hi there, Selena Green with you for the Country Hour today. Hopefully you're having a good Tuesday. Great to be with you. And I'm here until one o'clock today. Well, coming up, when you're choosing a bottle of wine or gin from the supermarket shelf, how much attention do you pay to the origin of the wine? The story of where it came or where it claims to be from and the story of the label. I think they're sort of misleading the consumer to a certain degree. It sounds like a Barossa story, but... um yeah, you can't be guaranteed it's Barossa fruit, unfortunately. So, Last night's episode of Four Corners, did you catch it? Well, it looked at the tactics used by supermarkets to keep prices high and competition out. It came up with some very interesting examples of how it does this with alcohol. So more on that very shortly. Stick around. And some more fish deaths have been recorded in the Menindee Weir Pool and along sections of the Darling River. What's to blame for that? What's it doing to the water quality for locals? If you want to call in throughout the program today, my talkback number, 1300 222891. The text line here is 0467 921. This is all to come after news headlines with Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, continuous shipbuilding has been guaranteed at Adelaide's Osborne Shipyard, with the federal government revealing its blueprint for Australia's surface navy fleet. The announcement aligns with the release of the Defence Surface Ship Review, which found the Australian Navy is sailing the oldest fleet in its history. The blueprint confirms 600 class frigates will be produced out of Adelaide up to 2043, with construction of replacement air warfare destroyers to follow. Urgent legislative changes designed to have criminals like Snowtown accomplice Mark Ray Hayden deemed high-risk offenders have just passed the lower house of parliament. The laws make it easier to impose supervision orders on high-risk offenders who've served their sentences. Hayden's full 25-year jail sentence expires in May, meaning he could be released into the community with no restrictions or supervision if the government is unsuccessful in asking the Supreme Court to grant an extended supervision order. 
And the Victor Harbour Private Hospital will cease operations on April the 19th. The Barossa Hills Fleurier Local Health Network says there'll be no loss of hours or jobs for existing staff and they'll work to ensure a smooth transition of services. The health network will take over the building and continue to use 16 of the beds and provide additional renal dialysis services. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. So if you caught Four Corners on ABC TV last night, you're in for an explosive look at the growing dominance of the major retailers. That program looked at tactics used by supermarkets to keep prices up and competition out. One startling example, described by former chair of the ACCC, Rod Sims, as misleading advertising, is Coles' home brand, Two Churches Wine, which markets itself as a South Australian Barossa Red, with a story steeped in the history of the region. You may not realise it, but Coles is a big player in wine. I've come to the Coles-owned vintage cellars to pick up a bottle of red. There's no shortage of choice, but like many consumers, I go for a mid-price wine at eye level. Just that one, thanks. So I decided on this one, the Two Churches Preacher Shiraz. I really like the label, but what really got me was the story on the back. It tells a tale of German immigrants coming to South Australia, of two Lutheran priests who fell out and built rival churches at opposite ends of the same village. Online, it's promoted as a tale from the Barossa Valley, where the priests disagreed on almost everything except the quality of grapes grown in the now famous wine region. So I'm here in the Barossa to find out where these grapes are grown. Here it is. So this is it, the Light Pass Emmanuel Church, just like on the bottle here. And over there, that's the rival church. It's just such a great story. Is this the home of two churches? I couldn't tell you that from this bottle. Adrian Hoffman is a fifth-generation grape grower from the Barossa and says there's no two churches vineyard around here. I think they're sort of misleading the consumer to a certain degree. It sounds like a Barossa story, but, um, yeah, you can't be guaranteed it's Barossa fruit, unfortunately. So So where is the home of Two Churches Wine? What about the address on the back? What does that tell me? Well, that's that's the first thing I'd sort of go to. You you look at where it's produced, and um, this says it's uh, Hawthorne East in Victoria. suburban Melbourne. Turns out this is the closest there is to a home for the two churches Shiraz. Not that it says Coles anywhere on the bottle. Coles says it has around 260 private label wines available through its liquor stores. I mean the test under law is would a reasonable consumer be misled? Now if on the label of the bottle you're telling a story that's unrelated to the product then I think that runs a serious risk of being misleading. Why not put your name on it? Why not say it's Coles Shardy or Supermarket Shiraz? 
why are you hiding the fact that you own this brand? So uh, in terms of communicating uh, with customers, um, there are practices across many retailers and many industries where... Take that point. Shouldn't you say, shouldn't you be honest with the consumer and say, this is a Coles wine? But why do it? We're very comfortable that the branding approach that we have in our liquor brands is one that resonates with customers. After our interview, Coles removed any reference to the Barossa from its online promotion of two churches. You heard there from Coles CEO Leah Weckett there speaking to Four Corners reporter Angus Grigg. And it's not just wine. One of the areas where the duopoly is gaining market power is private label spirits like gin and branding them similar to a boutique label. Kathleen Davies runs an online business that sells wholesale Australian spirits and she reckons it's a deceptive move. Years ago when when supermarkets would launch a home brand on the shelf, whether it be food or drink. It was very obvious who the home brands were. If you remember back, Black and Gold, um, they would even have their supermarket name on those products. Uh, now they're more or less mimicking small business and you know, acting like a small handcrafted craft brand. And it's very deceiving to uh, consumers because they're no longer uh, as obvious as what they used to be. But they're not breaking any rules doing this, though, are they? No, they're not. They're not. But if they fail, they don't lose their house. When a small business fails, you know, the people that are investing in the brand to build a truly handcrafted brand could lose their house if their, their, their brand fails. Um, you know, small business has so much more to lose than the, you know, supermarket players. They just go out and redesign another product. They've got a whole team behind them. They have all of the insights from sales, from marketing data. They know what uh, shelf position works best for their brands. They know what bottle shape works best based on competitive data that they have. They have so much more of an advantage over a small player in the market. Uh, who is, you know, launching a craft spirit into the Australian marketplace. And you represent a lot of those players. How do they feel about the supermarket presence in in the boutique uh, spirits space? Like a lot of people won't speak up about it because um, no one wants to hurt their relationships with the national retailers. Um, So to a certain extent, the small players have to just play along with it. I think I know um, friends that work in, um, you know, global companies are are very upset by it because, you know, they're more or less using their data to compete with them as well and take market share from them. But um, at the end of the day, I think it's the smaller businesses that are really suffering from this. You know, I I walked into uh, one of the major retailers the other day and looked at the Australian spirit shelf area and I asked them oh how's how's this area going and and the and the worker just basically said oh not that good and I said and and I'm used to seeing a lot of these brands that don't work collect dust and then end up in the bargain bin and you know it really ruins brand equity for these small um, producers and I said what brand is actually doing well and they pointed to the supermarket private label and I didn't know it was actually a private label till I picked it up and recognised the producer on the back. Because it was cheaper? Um, 
because it was cheaper. And I thought, how could someone produce this so cheaply? Like, especially from, um, you know, this particular line that I was looking at was made in Tasmania. And I thought, this is very cheap for a Tasmanian product. Do they have their place in the market if the, the gin is still being produced in Australia and still employing Australians? Yes, I do. I think... I think there needs to be more transparency, though, around who actually owns it. I think at the moment it's a little bit deceptive because they are mimicking a small business brand. But I think the advantages are great for small Australian distilleries who get to make it for them because it's excellent cash flow for a business and a great cash injection for them to sort of get on their feet and, you know, invest in their own brands. A lot of um, the time when uh, small Australian distilleries are starting out, they don't realise how much money they need to get, you know, properly started and properly market their brand and the, the route to market as well and, you know, getting their products on shelves. So I think... I'd rather private labels be made from with Australian producers than overseas producers, if if that's possible. But I know that doesn't happen. But um, I think in this particular case where I picked up the bottle, I was glad to see that it was actually made with an Australian-owned producer. So. Kathleen Davies there, an Australian spirits wholesaler, speaking to Larissa Smith. You can read more about this story on the ABC News website and you can can, can catch up on that full Four Corners episode if you didn't see it on ABC iView. It's 18 minutes to one. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. Well, over the last couple of weeks, a number of fish deaths have been recorded in the Menindee Weir Pool and along sections of the Darling River. Golden perch are the main species affected and residents are worried about the fish and the health of the river, especially the water quality. Grazier Barb Arnold lives at Bindara on the Darling and has been observing the water closely from her property. Yeah, I like, I like to see it sitting on the two. I mean, and, and <laughs> times passed before they fooled around with it. We always had a lot more than two, but two was acceptable. Um, we don't want to run all our water away, um, although it's you know we're well into summer now. Um, but we always have to be mindful of how much water there is and how much we have to share. We've got to always think of the environment too, which as it flows past it too, I think that's a healthy, healthy amount. So as it stands right now, with the water quality, do you yourself uh, pump water from the river to consume? Uh, are you confident with the overall water quality? Are you holding very high concerns about the quality of the water in the river right now? Where do you stand with that? I have been. Our only water is in the in the in the, in the river, so it's drinking, showering, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm not drinking it. I have never not drunk it, but this last couple of years, I've taken to buying water because I'm not happy with the um, the condition of the water, and I'm not going to take any risks with my health. So I have not been drinking it. So it's yes, and it's it's an additional expense when you think you're living right on the river. But you know, even putting it through the filter, it's still got a rank sort of a smell. In the past, you could drink our darling water and it was sweet. It was nice. You went down to the Murray where I've got another place and you drink it and it's like swamp water, right? Yeah. And it's always a, it's a sweet, really nice water, but it's not got that taste now, so I don't drink it. And with the situation as it stands right now, and we're hearing reports of and witnessing uh, golden perch that are dying or are dead, have you seen any... DPI or Water New South Wales people on the ground or any boats coming up the river? You mentioned not much activity recently, but have you seen anyone else 
boots on the ground, inspecting or doing checks uh, in your part? Absolutely zilch. And that's gone for quite a number of, what's well, almost 12 months. We've never seen anybody on the river checking or otherwise, no. Has anyone been in contact with you to touch base and, and see how you're tracking even even by a phone call or have you been able to contact anyone and raise your concerns about the state of the river and the levels and the water quality? No, there's been nobody contact me and uh, I'm probably being remiss and not getting on the phone. And uh, But I do follow it closely with the Menindee people as well. I have first-hand knowledge of what's happening there, which, of course, is the first step to what happens here three days later. Yes. Um, I haven't as yet seen any dead fish come through, but we'll see what happens. Still dying a day ago, which, I mean, you know, in, in the context of things, I would be three days behind. So looking ahead, Barb, what do you foresee in the coming uh, days or weeks? You may have mentioned you are sort of three days away from the weir and what happens up there will eventually reach you if any dead fish do come down. What is your outlook on the situation right now as we discuss it uh, in mid to late February. How are you feeling and what do you see for the foreseeable future? Well, I'd say it doesn't look good. We're only in mid-February and we've had some fairly hot sort of days here. This all has, you know, effect on the river, of course, and the lower it is, the hotter it's going to get, the water. That's why I don't like to see it under two two metres during the summer. Fish need a bit of a go and, um, yeah, well, things look okay on the surface. I'm not happy about people settling with, with putting stuff in the water, um, that that's always a concern to me. We have enough, you know, chemicals that come down the river from up above as it, you know, happens, and each town it goes past and must pick up bits and pieces. But, yeah, to reasonably recent years, I, we weren't concerned. We used to check our salinity, and that was about it, because, um, like I said, the water was sweet. It's not sweet now, so I'm not drinking it. That's Grazier Barb Arnold. Menindi local and water advocate Kate McBride says the reports of a parasite impacting the fish, fish isn't the only reason for the recent deaths. So there's definitely concerns with these reports that have come back. Um, I was speaking to my neighbour just the other day and he said that it's not crazy uncommon to see a parasite or, or this anchor worm um, on fish, of course, fish that are, um, that are stressed are more susceptible to it, which is probably why we're seeing more of it now. But there's more to this than just a parasite. And I think we really need to be looking at the water that these fish are in. Is it of sufficient quality and quantity? And I think, you know, anyone could tell you that it's not. The river stinks. We've got blue-green algae alerts. Um, and locals are, are rightfully so complaining about it. I mean, I live just upstream of Menindee now. And I can see all that's coming down and it's disgusting. It's not good enough. And we seriously need to have more action in this space. The quality of water that's coming down the river is really important to be considering. Um, there's not a great deal of water coming down and it's really poor quality. And so we're putting bad quality water on top of, you know, an area of the river that is still struggling in terms of quality. And part of this is due to the fish kills that happened last year. Um, you know, there's serious concerns around this. And I've been calling since about August last year for embargoes to make sure that we're getting some significant flows down this river system because the water quality that's here is not good enough and we're saying our fish go belly up. Um, what clearer explanation could the river give that something is not okay? And I think we're seeing government departments and the minister try to make it seem like what's happening right now is, is somewhat acceptable and it's simply not. More needs to be done. We need more people on the ground. 
And I think one of the biggest concerns from our community as well is if we see another mass fish kill, like we did, if we see another one, you know, in the coming weeks, is the capacity there to clean them up? And the answer is simply no. I've heard there might be a dinghy or two in town ready for clean-up, and that's just not enough. In terms of what we need right now as well, though, the New South Wales Chief Financial Report laid out a number of recommendations, and a number of them were for immediate action that were meant to be addressed within the first 12 months. And unfortunately, I don't think enough has been done in this space. We saw the Premier, Chris Minns, when they first got elected, come out with Rose Jackson, the Water Minister, and say, you know, this wasn't good enough, we need to see some change. But we actually haven't seen those sort of boots on the ground and some significant action to get some water down this river system that we need to be seeing right now. That's Menindi local and water advocate Kate McBride speaking with Patrick Reinke. Now, a spokesperson from the New South Wales Department uh, has said that site assessments were completed last week by DPI fisheries staff with further inspections undertaken over the weekend by New South Wales government agencies to gain a better understanding of affected numbers, species and any other observations. Statement goes on to say water quality aspects such as dissolved oxygen remain in safe ranges for native fish. Pathologists at the DPI's uh, Agricultural Institute have completed an initial assessment of the earliest samples collected from the Darling Barker River and they say that uh, it's confirmed the presence of Lernia saprincia, or better wise known as the anchor worm on the fish and they say additional samples have been taken for histology and culturing to determine if there are any other potential causes of mortality. It's just going on 10 minutes to one. Well, demand for South Australian rock lobster has been mixed this season. With no changes to the lobster trade ban with China, retailers have been trying to get the domestic trade moving. Managing Director of Seafood Retailer and Exporter for Ferguson Australia, Andrew Ferguson, says demand was a bit flat over January. Yeah, the Christmas period was quite good and moving into January was the first week of January. There was, was a strong demand and then it tailed right off through January and sort of caught, came back on again uh, just before Chinese New Year, which we're right in the holiday period now of Chinese New Year. So it did pick up for the last week of, of January. Um, nothing really amazing, but it was the demand was there and it's sort of, I guess we're in the limbo now between everyone's on holidays and waiting for payments and things like that to come through, things are closed. So we think that it'll probably come back again next week. Uh, and then, you know, who knows what will happen after that. So was that similar to, you know, this time last year? It's probably similar, but a little bit better because uh, we've, COVID was still, I think, from memory, was still affecting China. And, and this time last year, I, didn't, I think it came out of COVID in February or something like that. So it's better. Chinese New Year was sort of not back to normal but was certainly we felt it this year after no effect in the marketplace for four years I think so you know it's certainly the local market was very good too I might add uh, over the Chinese New Year period. Yeah so how has domestic demand been? Well prices have gone up a little bit and Christmas was okay probably not the price of lobsters has moved up a little bit so that's sort of affecting demand a bit but yeah no I guess Overall, we're sort of we're managing, but it's not easy. It's certainly not you know four years of shutdowns in China and whatnot. It takes a while to sort of find other other markets and, and find your way. But it's sort of slowly coming back. A big you know the big difference, I suppose, in Southeast Asia and across it is you know now we're out of the COVID period. It does make it that that certainly helps.
So where have the Crays been going that are heading overseas? Oh, mostly to other Asian countries. You know, Hong Kong's a huge market for us now because it's, you know, we're probably the, the cheaper lobster. And, you know, there's five, six million people there that love and eat lobster. So Hong Kong's market has certainly grown. And, you know, we'd, we'd probably you know, have exclusive to, compared to New Zealand, that market, I suppose, Australian lobster. Uh, and then other Southeast Asian countries as well. So it does, it does, a smattering goes across there and then some processed products of different other European countries and America. So, yeah, spread a, spread a bit and then, of course, the local market as well. So not, obviously, the, the market in China was taking all volume and, and more when it was open. But, uh, yeah, I guess it's got a little bit better than what it was when it first started, when it was first closed. So the whole industry for quite a while now has been hopeful that China would, of course, come back on board and start buying lobster again. That hasn't happened. Has that been impacting how fishers have been going out when they've been going out? Have they been holding off filling their quota in case they come back? Definitely the the fishermen have stopped and started more than they were sort of five or six years ago, trying to you know pick the price when, it, when there is a bit of market stability there. And it's just meant the the lobster season's prolonged further than it normally would have. You know, it's a, it's a fairly long season, so instead of catching it in four or five months, it's sort of caught spread over six or seven months. But it all gets caught, um, and it all goes to market somewhere. So it's not as if it doesn't get caught, but the fishermen just had to have to fish a bit differently than perhaps they had to in the past. And quality's been good? Quality's been really good this year. Like, we've seen good strong fish right through actually it's been been a really good year for that for that you know a few years ago we're having trouble with fish dying in the tanks and things like that but no this year's been quite good in that that area no inklings or murmurs on when china might be back andrew but we're all hopeful of china coming back and i see don farrell's got a meeting in abu dhabi i think next week or the week after and there's sort of you know hoping for some positive news there who knows it's sort of been going on for long enough and there's been promises being made uh, of, of it coming back, but it's sort of been a you know, hard hard game to play when you sort of don't know what, what the future is. Andrew Ferguson there, Managing Director of Ferguson Australia, speaking with Elsie Adamo. Well, finally today, what's a staple on your weekly household menu? Maybe it's pizza night or perhaps lamb chops on the barbecue. How about some canned boiled rabbit? Does that sound appetising? might not get much of a run these days, but 100 years ago, Australia was home to quite a number of rabbit canneries that sprung up following a plague of rabbits across southern Australia. While many viewed the animals as a pest, and still do, in the late 1920s, the rabbit was the largest employer of labour in the country, as Liz Rymel explains. Friday on the farm, his rabbit pie day. So well. In 1929, the rabbit industry was reported to be the largest employer of labour in Australia. And between 1870 and 1970, over 20 billion rabbits were trapped or poisoned across southeast Australia for commercial purposes, including for skins and carcasses, or even as a dinnertime staple in households not only here in Australia, but in London too. Around the end of the 1800s and into the new century, rabbit canneries sprang up around the country. 
In South Australia, preserving works were first established by the Northern Rabbit Meat Preserving Company between Kapunda and Udunda, where the company purchased around 45,000 rabbits every month. Other canneries popped up at Mount Gambier, Port Augusta, Robe and Kingston in the southeast, as Maureen Andrews from the Kingston National Trust explains. Kingston did have a very big canning factory. It was opened in about 1902 by three people called Clark, Ewer and Hill. It was called the Kingston Preserving and Canning Factory and reports in the paper say it was equipped with the very latest and up-to-date machinery for preserving all kinds of meat. And we've got some photographs of it. It was down by Dudley Bridge on the edge of the Mariah. The skin shed had a capacity of 30,000 rabbit skins that was attached to this canning factory, and the canning factory could handle 1,500 pairs of rabbits daily, employed 14 people directly, and this is between 1902 and 1906, and it exported 800,000 cans of rabbit. It was bound for the export market, and we've got photographs of pallets of it on the jetty being loaded, but canned rabbit didn't become a long-lived delicacy. And in Kingston, it came to a rather memorable end. The whole thing failed in 1906 and was closed down. So this boom and bust performance of, of, of this industry sort of mirrored a whole lot of other things that were going on. So I had a pretty close look at why. Why, why did it close down in 1906? And there are local you know, oral <laughs> accounts that a load of cans was left on the jetty and it got a bit hot and it exploded with <laughs> such force that it damaged the jetty. And somebody else said that there was an outbreak of botulism which was traced back to the Kingston cannery. So this facility sat empty for quite a long time. There was some talk that the government might take it over never taken over. While for some the rabbit provided economic opportunity and a livelihood, it remained a divisive feature of the landscape. Some people saw them as an environmental disaster and we probably still consider them an environmental disaster and they wanted to exterminate them all. But there were other people who saw them as an economic opportunity. So, rabbit pie on the menu tonight? I don't know. How does that bite you boat? Canned boiled rabbit. Uh, that very interesting little slice of Australian history from Liz Rymel. That's it for me for today. Thank you so much for your company. Don't forget that Nicola Bellharts will be with you this afternoon on your radio. He'll be not too far away at all, and you can keep up with all of the ongoing rural news from the Country Hour team and the rural team from across ABC Australia on our website, abc.net.au forward slash rural. It's just coming up to time for One O'Clock News. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.